the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with retired Judge Tom Cole. He is the founder and director of Paid in Full. We'll bring you up to date on this remarkable ministry and the fact that inmates in the Oregon State prison system are going to benefit very soon. First, we'll take a look at some of the... Oh, and I should also mention Chris Palmer, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Uh, We'll share that conversation with you in the 5 o'clock hour. Some of the headlines, uh, tension with Iran is continuing to simmer as the Secretary of State says U.S. backed Saudi uh, Arabia's right to defend itself And the president raising sanctions. Well, the secretary of state said that the United States backs Saudi Arabia's right to defend itself following last weekend's attack targeting the heart of its oil industry. On Wednesday, Pompeo described the attack as an act of war. As President Trump said, he had ordered Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin to substantially increase sanctions on Iraq with escalating tensions between the two countries. Pompeo's latest comments come on Twitter as he Uh, as was uh, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, after meeting with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the kingdom's defense minister. The Saudis on Wednesday displayed missile and drone wreckage and cited other evidence that alleged... Uh, allegedly shows the raid was unquestionably sponsored by Iran. Iran has denied involvement in the attack and warned the U.S. it will retaliate immediately if it is targeted. And President Trump told reporters aboard Air Force One on Wednesday that within a week, his administration will slap San Francisco with a notice of environmental violations related to the city's homelessness problem. The president made the remarks while returning to Washington, D.C. after a two-day fundraising trip in California. The president said the Environmental Protection Agency will give San Francisco a notice related to the tremendous amount of pollution flowing into the ocean from the city's storm sewers. Reuters reported they also said hypodermic needles littered the sewers there and were polluting the sea. There's both good news and bad news for former Vice President Joe Biden, according to a new Fox News poll. Most Democratic primary voters still consider him the candidate that has the best chance of defeating President Trump in 2020 and bringing the White House back to the Democratic Party. But Biden's support is at a new low. He captures the support of 29 percent of Democratic primary voters, the poll says. That's down two points since last month and down six points since May when he was at a high of 35 percent. Support. His current 11 point lead is down from a high of 19 points in June. Senator Bernie Sanders, he climbs back into second with 18 percent, up 8 percent since August, followed by Senator Elizabeth Warren at 16 percent, down 4 percent since earlier. Uh, forming the clearest uh, top three candidate tier seen in the race to date. 
Former National Security Advisor John Bolton on Wednesday reportedly blasted the president's aborted plan to invite the Taliban to Camp David, saying the move sent a terrible signal and was disrespectful to the victims of 9-11 because the Taliban had harbored al-Qaeda. Bolton, speaking at a private luncheon, also said negotiations with North Korea and Iran were doomed to failure on the president's watch. Two attendees told Politico. One witness said Bolton, who parted ways with the administration last week, ripped Trump without using his name. He also said Trump's failure to respond to the Iranian attacks on an American drone earlier this summer set the stage for its aggression in recent months, including last Saturday's attack on Saudi oil fields. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will have a have to get through a primary challenger if she wants to hold on to her House seat in 2020. Democratic activist Badrun Khan, who has challenged Ocasio-Cortez for the Democratic nomination to represent New York's 14th district, says on her website that she'll provide real results, not empty promises. Emphasis was part of the text. An apparent jab at the squad leader. When asked about Khan's challenge, Ocasio-Cortez said, I just focused on delivering for my district and doing the best job. I try not to focus too much on other folks in the field, according to The Hill. Representatives from the White House and the Department of Justice met on Tuesday with senior Republicans to discuss expanding background checks for the sale of firearms within the parameters of legislation first introduced by Senator Joe Manchin. The uh, relevant legislation seeks to expand background check requirements to include all advertised commercial sales, including sales at gun shows, according to an idea sheet first obtained by the Daily Caller. Such um, background checks would be conducted either through the federal firearm licensee or through a newly created class of licensed transfer agents. And according to the Associated Press, Canadian leader Justin Trudeau's campaign was hit Wednesday by the publication of a yearbook photo, as well as other images showing him in brown face makeup at a 2001 costume party. 2001. The prime minister apologized and said it was a dumb thing to do. Political commentator Matt Walsh observed, personally, I don't give much attention to what the costume anyone wears some 20 years ago, but the audacity to go around screaming racist at everyone and everything while you know that you have this in your background, that's what gets me. That's why Trudeau deserves to be pilloried. He also points out, remember when Megyn Kelly was fired for simply talking about blackface? Hmm. Well, the uh, backlog deportation docket pending in U.S. immigration courts surpassed one million cases in August, despite the Trump administration's varied attempts to cut back on asylum claims. The backlog this year was has grown at a record pace, according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse at Syracuse University, which tracks immigration court data. The figure was nearly doubled since the president took office in January of 2017, when about 542,000 cases were pending. The Department of the Interior announced on Wednesday they had transferred over 500 acres of federal land to the Army to build more barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. Lands that were transferred over include parts of El Paso, Texas, San Diego, California, and Yuma, Arizona. The Department of Defense has allocated $3.6 billion to fund 11 barrier projects at the southern border following the president's signing Presidential Proclamation 9844 in February. And the Federal Reserve approved a much-anticipated quarter-point interest rate cut on Wednesday, but offered few indications that further reductions are ahead as members split on what to do next. Following its two-day policy meeting, the central bank announced that it would take down its benchmark overnight lending rate to a target range of 1.75 to 2 percent. That's uh, coming nearly two months after the policy-making Federal Open Market Committee went ahead with its first cut in 11 years. 
And President Trump told reporters aboard Air Force One on Wednesday that within a week, his administration will slap San Francisco with a notice of environmental uh, violations. The president intends to do just that. And NBC News asks Americans to confess their climate change sins. Hmm. On this day in history, in 1982, the smiley emoticon is invented by Carnegie Mellon University professor Scott Falman, who suggested punctuating humorously intended computer messages with a colon followed by a hyphen and a parenthesis as a horizontal smiley face. On this day in 1881, James Garfield, 20th president of the United States, dies in New Jersey two and a half months after being shot in Washington by Charles Guteau. Chester Allen Arthur becomes president. And on this day in 1957, the United States conducts its first underground nuclear test in the Nevada desert. On this day in 1985, the Mexico City uh, area is struck by a devastating earthquake that kills at least 9,500 people. On this day in 2001, the Pentagon orders combat aircraft to the Persian Gulf following the September 11th attacks, terrorist attacks. And finally, on uh, this day in 2008, the Bush administration lays out a bailout plan calling for a takeover of a half trillion dollars or more in worthless mortgages and other bad debt held by tottering institutions. Relieved investors send stocks soaring on Wall Street and around the globe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, retired Judge Tom Cole will join me later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next in our next segment, we'll talk with retired Judge Tom Cole, paid in full, bringing you the latest on this, uh, this ministry. Well, severe flash flooding hit parts of East Texas on Thursday as the center of tropical depression Imelda hit close to Houston just over two years since the community was devastated by Hurricane Harvey. Up to five inches of rain per hour could fall in Harris County, where Houston is located throughout the day Thursday, forecasters say. The National Weather Service issued a flash flood emergency warning for several counties, saying life-threatening amounts of rainfall have already dropped. County officials reported a combination of at least a 1,000 high-water rescues and evacuations to get people to shelter in anticipation of the threats lingering. The city of Hampshire saw more than 40 inches of rain, 40 inches, 25 of which fell within a 12-hour span, and meteorologists with AccuWeather are predicting a total of 55 inches of rain there. Mayor Sylvester Turner cautioned people against driving or going outside, urging residents to wait for the storm to clear, remain where you are, and be safe, the city's Office of Emergency Management advised online. And a whistleblower complaint that reportedly involved allegations President Trump made a troubling and unspecified promise to a foreign leader touched off a new Washington firestorm today as the intelligence community's top watchdog was questioned by Congress on the matter and the president adamantly denied the accusations. The details surfaced overnight in a Washington Post report, but many specifics remain unclear, including the identity of the foreign leader. Uh, It's been confirmed, the report, that the White House officials have not offered additional comments, but Trump railed against the Post's reporting in a flurry of tweets that alleged alleged uh, his communications with foreign leaders were being blown out of proportion. Another fake news story out there, it never ends. Virtually any time I speak on the phone to a foreign leader, I understand that there may be many people listening from various U.S. agencies, not to mention those from other countries themselves. No problem, Trump said, knowing all of this. 
Uh, is anybody dumb enough to believe that I would say something inappropriate with a foreign leader while on such a potentially heavily um, populated call? I would only do what is right anyway and only do it for the United States, end quote. Well, he capped off his complaint by declaring presidential harassment. The Post reported that a U.S. intelligence officials filed the formal complaint in regard to the president's communications with the unnamed foreign leader. The complaint, in turn, has triggered a showdown with Congress after acting director of national intelligence. Uh, jo- uh, Joseph McGuire would not share details of it with uh, lawmakers. Those lawmakers pressed intelligence community inspector general Michael Atkinson for details during a closed door testimony before the House Intelligence Committee. The Associated Press reported, though, that he would not discuss the substance of the complaint. After the testimony, Intelligence Committee Chairman Representative Adam Schiff voiced concerns about not having access to the information, warning Congress could use legal action to or budgetary powers Uh, as leverage. It's very um, unfortunate when private conversations in the uh, with the executive um, are leaked in that way for the sake of um, the relationship between the executive and these other leaders. I'm not sure what mechanism there is for uh, expressing one's complaint, but the Washington Post probably isn't the way to go. The House of Representatives approved an interim spending bill on Thursday, boosting hopes to of avoiding a government shutdown at the end of the month. The bill, which funds the government at current levels through the 21st of November, was passed 301 to 123. All but three Democrats voted in support of the measure, meaning the bill could have passed the House without any GOP yay votes at all. The Senate is expected to approve the package next week, meaning fights over funding for President's Uh, President Trump's border wall and possible restrictions on appropriations for the Department of Homeland Security restrictions over the treatment of migrants will erupt then. If the bill is enacted, lawmakers would have until November 21st to negotiate and approve $1.4 trillion in federal agencies or for federal agencies. Those bills would fill in the details of this summer's budget and debt agreement between the president and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The House passed measure also extends some expiring federal programs and replenishes the president's bailout of farmers who've been hurt by the U.S. trade dispute with China. Democrats say Agricultural Secretary Sonny Perdue is favoring certain crops over others, and Democrats won language requiring a report on where the bailout money is going. President uh, Trump smiled on Wednesday as he received a briefing on a section of his long-promised border wall that is now under construction south of San Diego. I want to show you some of the details of the wall, he told reporters who were covering him at the time. You can see a pretty good view. This is uh, going to be close to 500 miles by the time we finish. Those are the areas that are most important. Well, the president said the wall will be either 18 feet high or 30 feet high, depending on the land where it's located and how heavily trafficked that area may be. In some places, such as where he was standing near Tijuana, there is a double wall, one on the border, the other uh, running parallel to it on the U.S. side. It will be over 400 miles, and we think we can get it close to 500 miles by the end of next year, depending on certain terrain conditions, the president said. But we're doing all of the most important areas. We have a lot of natural barriers like mountains and streams and rivers and pretty Uh, vicious and violent rivers, actually, but it's an amazing project, end quote. Well, the Army Corps of Engineers is building the wall. The Corps' commanding general, Tom um, Semonite, explained what makes this wall virtually impenetrable, as the president described the reinforced steel and concrete slatted design.
And it's increasingly more important to Democratic primary voters to beat President Donald Trump than support their favorite candidate. And former Vice President Joe Biden is widely considered the candidate most likely to give them the White House. That's a major source of strength for Biden, who continues to lead the Democratic field, albeit at a new low. Biden captures the support of 29 percent of Democratic primary voters, according to a new Fox poll. That's down two percent since last month and down six points since May when he was at a high of 35 percent support. His current 11 point lead is down from a high of 19 points in June. Uh, Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, climbs back into second with 18 percent, up eight points since August, followed by Elizabeth Warren at 16 percent, down four percent. Uh, down four points, rather, forming the clearest uh, top three candidate tier seen since the uh, beginning of the race. The next tier includes Kamala Harris at 7 percent, Pete Buttigieg at 5, Beto O'Rourke at 4 percent, of course, Cory Booker at 3, and both Andrew Yang and Amy Klobuchar at 2 percent. Michael Bennett, John Delaney, and Tom Steyer each received 1 percent. The top picks among self-described moderates and conservatives voting in the Democratic primary are Biden at 34 percent, Sanders at 14, Warren at 9, Very liberals uh, uh, go for Sanders, 31 percent, Biden, 22, and Warren, 20 percent. Primary voters under age 35 prefer Sanders at 35 percent over Biden at 17 percent, and Elizabeth Warren at 14 percent. Those ages 45 and over go even more heavily for Biden at 38 percent over Warren uh, Warren at 17 percent and Sanders at eight. Washington is rescinding $160 million directed to Afghanistan. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced on Thursday, citing unacceptable levels of corruption in the Afghan government. We'll tell you more about that at the top of the hour. But coming up, we're going to talk with retired Judge Tom Cole. He is the founder and director of Paid in Full. While he has served as a Washington County judge for uh, nearly two decades, it wasn't until his daughter was murdered in a violent crime Uh, that his life began to change so dramatically that today he's leading a ministry that reaches out to those who are incarcerated here in Oregon. We'll talk a little bit about that odyssey, as well as uh, the ministry paid in full that he has uh, founded and now directs. This ministry, by the way, is providing opportunities for inmates as soon as next month. We'll give him an opportunity to bring us up to date. There's also an event coming up uh, next, uh, I believe it's in November. We'll uh, also give you the details for that if you'd like to learn more about the ministry. You can go to their website at Paid in Full. Um, All of that coming up when uh, Judge... Tom Cole joins me in just a few moments. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Chris Palmer, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm so delighted to have with me in studio Senior Judge Tom Cole. In 2006, uh, he lost his daughter Megan to a brutal murder. He wrote a book about the murder. In fact, he thought it was for families of murder victims. Uh, his experience in drug court was a part of the story as well. Well, the book opened the doors for him to begin speaking in prisons here in Oregon and around the country, which eventually led to the idea of placing a fully accredited college program in prison. That's the abbreviated version. He retired from full time judging in January of 2016, currently is on assignment part-time as a senior judge for the state of Oregon. But he is the founder and director of Paid in Full. And I'm uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you. I can't believe the progress that's been made since the first time you and I had a conversation about this ministry and where things stand today. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me here again, Georgine. Uh, I'm, I'm just 
thrilled at how much you put up with me here in your studio. So, <laughs> well, I, I so appreciate the work that you're doing. I recall uh, you had gone to Angola, and I think it was uh, uh, the warden at the prison had prayed for you before you left there. And what he prayed over you was sort of shocking at the time. He prayed that you wouldn't rest until there was a, a ministry here in Oregon similar to what they had done in Angola. For listeners who aren't familiar with that story, could you tell us the, the Reader's Digest version of it? Because it's, it's, once again, it's just remarkable. Yeah, so I, I had started going down to Angola. I was really just impressed with how it used to be one of the most violent maximum security prisons in the country. And then it was, now it was the safest. And so... I got to be friends with the warden there, Burrow Kane, who brought in uh, the first seminary in the United States in a prison and offered a four-year college degree program. It changed the hearts of the men there, so it became one of the safest prisons. So one time I was down there, and I prayed with the warden, and uh, I was getting ready to leave, and he says, Judge, he said, uh, sit down, bow your head, and close your eyes. And so when the warden of a maximum security prison says, sit down, close your head, <laughs> and bow your eyes, you do, and I did, and this was his prayer. He said, Dear Lord, don't let this man rest until the Oregon Department of Corrections has a Bible college in it. Amen. And I said, Warden, you know that you don't know Oregon. That's never going to happen. It's one of the most unchurched states in the country. And I said, Why would you pray this prayer for me? They want me to have any no no rest until then. I you know, because it was all about me then. But <laughs> so and he looked at me and says, Judge, who do we worship? And 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 I said, Yeah, the God of the impossible, right? Yeah. So that, yeah. just, that planted the seed. Yeah, and that was impossible. I mean, mm-hmm. by all measures, that was an impossible thing to pray over you. You came back to uh, to Oregon, and you traveled to Angola, I think, another time or two. How did this uh, project begin here in Oregon? Well, it began with me meeting with the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections, Colette Peters. And that was my first contact when I came back. And I asked her about uh, uh, the possibility of... of Uh, gathering together a team of Oregon officials to go down and visit Angola on a field trip. And uh, after about five minutes of talking with her, she said, I'd love to. And so she designated a representative, and that started that process. Eventually, we took uh, 12 people down to Angola in January of 2015, 12 Oregon officials. Now, starting a, a project like this in the Oregon state prison system is no small thing. It's not just something you decide to do. There's a lot that has to happen. There's approval that needs to be in place. There are partners that have to be uh, found. All of that fell into place. You took this team with you to Angola. You came back, and things started to move. Yeah, and so in January of 2016, uh, after, I, after I retired, uh, I received word from the Department of Corrections that they were willing to consider allowing a faith-based university to come in and implant a four-year college degree there. So... Uh, I was excited. I was on retirement vacation at that time. I couldn't get back to the United States quick enough. Uh, I got back, and I started meeting with uh, more people. And eventually, I met with the president of Corbin University, Sheldon Nord, and uh, he agreed to uh, allow Corbin University to go inside the prison and actually offer a four-year college degree program there. Uh, the Department of Corrections then gave us space at one of their prisons, Oregon State Correctional Institution, that's a 950-man prison in Salem. Just as you're leaving town in South Salem there and going towards Detroit Lake, it's the prison you see on the right-hand side. Most of, most everybody has seen it before. Mm-hmm. They may not know the name of it. Yeah. So we were given 3,300 square feet of space in that prison, and we had to build two classrooms. And, and again, so, 
that's no small thing. It's no. not <laughs> you just don't put, you know, a little team together. It requires tremendous resource to to make it fit for what this um, project is going to establish. Yeah. And so we had uh, uh, we had to hire an architect. It uh, cost $44,500 to hire an architect. We had to give the state that money first, and then they hi- actually hired the architect. Mm-hmm. So they were surprised, I think, when we came up with that money. God provided that money in, in less than a month. So we did that, and then eventually, uh, because you're remodeling an older building, the building codes are triggered, and it became a very costly project. Initially, it was estimated at $200,000. The architects estimated the total cost at $473,000. In June of this year, I gave a check to the DOC for $473,000. I was, you know, in my office above my garage, and writing out a check on our little (laughs) paid-in-full checkbook for $473,000. I've never made out a check that big. (laughs) And so I took it down there, and then so that enabled the state to go out and put that contract out for bid for general contractors. So the bid opening day was uh, July 23rd of this year. Uh, We anticipated, uh, you know, we had $473,000 in the account. We opened the bids, and the lowest bid was $599,987, which was $187,000 more than what the architects told us it was going to cost. I mean, that's what's happening with construction these days. We had to have that money in 14 days. And and, uh, I felt like I got kicked in the gut, uh, went home, had a couple of sleepless nights, did a lot of praying, and God actually raised $187,000 in 10 days. So on August 9th, I went down, took him some more money, and uh, I think they were a little surprised, and uh, as I was. And, and But you know, when, when it's God's vision, he's going to make provision, and that's exactly what happened. So um, September 13th, last Friday, the general contractor signed the contract. We will begin construction of the remodel on October 6th of this year. That's good news, but the really greater news is that... Uh, we are starting classes on October 14th this year. Even though the remodel will not be finished, the Department of Corrections has so graciously offered us a temporary classroom space in the same prison so we can begin classes on October 14th. We're excited about that. Yeah, that's such a remarkable story, as you've mentioned, of God's provision. Um, someone prays over you, a warden prays over you, <laughs> that you would not rest until this project has come to fruition and here we are standing on the edge of that um, that happening here in just a few weeks. Yes, yes. Your thoughts on um, that prayer and all that God has done in the intervening uh, period leading up to that opening date of classes? Well, it's it's just been amazing, all the things that had to come into play. Uh, we had to get computers, laptop computers for the guys. The state agreed to allow that. This is the first time in states in the history of the state where they have allowed computers, each man to have a computer of his own there. So the first time in Oregon, it's the first time in Oregon uh, where there have been, there's been a college degree program offered for all the men in the state of Oregon to apply for and to be accepted into. And so there have been so many firsts on this. And, and, and some of the road, roadblocks that we've had have just been swiped away, you know, by, mm-hmm. by God. It's been, you know, troubling for me <laughs> when I go to bed at night. But, you know, the next day, God removes those those stumbling blocks that are there. So that's been the remarkable thing about that. Uh, and then to actually believe that we're going to be starting classes mm. on October 14th. Corbin University hired a uh, uh, 
a man from Wisconsin to be the director of their program in the prison. His name is Amit Bhatia. He's of Indian descent. He used to be a Hindu uh, and was a practicing Hindu and then uh, uh, probably 10 years ago became a Christian uh, because he lived with a Christian, had a Christian roommate for five years (laughs) and heard, heard nothing but Jesus during that period of time. He gave in, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So he's going to be the director of the program there. He's excited about it. The, the, uh, we opened up the registration for the Corbin Extension in OSCI, and 188 men across the state applied for 25 positions. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Now, that had to be uh, rewarding, first of all, to read through these applications, but a little bit challenging, too, to wheedle that down to 25 yeah, yeah. So, so the DOC had some of their own uh, criteria that they were using. The men needed to have at least two years of a clean disciplinary record. They need to have have good scores on some of the educational tests that they had been given uh, throughout their time there at DOC. Uh, each one of the applicants had to have at least eight years left on his sentence because we wanted them to get their degree after four years and then give back to the state uh, for at least four years after that. They are going to be sent out like missionaries to the rest of the prisons in Oregon to be mentors and counselors uh, to the men that are there. They're going to serve as education tutors and mental health helpers. Uh, They're going to be chaplain's assistants. Uh, They're going to help with suicide watch and and gang renunciation. So DOC already has plans for the use of these men with their college degrees. It's going to be a BS uh, degree in liberal arts, emphasizing psychology, social services, and leadership. They're going to have at least 30 hours of psychology and 30 hours of theology during their course of studies for four years. Uh, absolutely amazing. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Senior Judge Tom Cole. We're talking about Paid in Full. He is the founder and director, and amazing things are happening, and there's still opportunities for you to help. We'll tell you more about that when we return as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Senior Judge Tom Cole. He is the founder and director of Paid in Full uh, Oregon, and classes are starting for inmates in the Oregon State Prison System for the 14th of October. Yes, yes. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. It, it's amazing. I'm shocked. <laughs> you know, I can't believe it. Uh, We'll probably take videos of the first class there just so I can play those back, you know. Uh, but, yeah, we've, so we've selected 25 inmates. We had 188 uh, student inmates. They're changing the name of inmate to adults in custody now, so they're calling them AICs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so 188 AICs applied for 25 positions. That was narrowed down by DOC, and DOC narrowed it down to about 83, and then they sent those applications over to Corbin. I was part of the process there. All the applicants had to write an essay uh, question. They had to answer this question, why do you want to enter college? And I brought with me just a short quote from one of the guys who was one of the successful applicants, and this is what he said. When I was first arrested, I didn't transition well. I was going to commit suicide two weeks later, but ended up crying myself to sleep that night while holding on to the Bible like a baby with his blanket. That night, God came to me in a dream. I was in prison, preaching and teaching a group of men. When I awoke, I felt amazing. No worries, no stress. God had taken my burdens from me. Later that day, I read Psalm 51, and verse 13 jumped out at me as if I had never read it before. And this is verse 13. And I will teach those who have committed lawless acts and bring them back to you. 
He goes on, this is exactly what I was doing in my dream, teaching transgressors and bringing them back to God. I'm not applying to this program for the BA degree. I'm applying to the, for the opportunity to receive the education and tools needed to help and mentor others the way, they, the way God wants me to. So, I mean, just amazing essays from these guys. The professors that were grading the essays said these essays were better than the incoming students' essays that they, that they reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, was a remarkable pro- pro- uh, prospect. Yeah. yeah, I just think about God orchestrating everything long before the project was ready to go, long before you were prayed over, you know, don't rest until this thing comes to pass in the, in the state of Oregon. God is already moving on the hearts of some of these young men. Yeah, yeah. So wow. we got our big fundraiser coming up on November 9th, which is we have a $203,000 budget this year, 2019, 2020. And, and uh, so we're having our fundraiser on November 19th this year. If anybody, and it's it's open November, yeah, November ninth. Yeah. Excuse me. So if it's open, uh, if one of somebody wants to attend, they can go to our website at paidinfulloregon.org and actually sign up for the fundraiser uh, on that website. So it's an Eventbrite uh, uh, matter there. And again, that's coming up on November 9th, six o'clock to eight thirty p.m. Paid in Full Oregon's. Uh, Founders Banquet, and there you can hear more information about the future of this ministry as it's. Um, coming to full fruition uh, next month. Yeah. Just very exciting. Now, I would imagine for these men who are going to be a part of the program, there are challenges for them being a part of the prison population and coming into this kind of setting. What kinds of challenges do you anticipate they're going to face from fellow inmates? Well, first of all, they're from all over the state. So we've got men from Snake River. We've got men from Two Rivers Correctional Institution, Pendleton, uh, and uh, down south. So these men are being transferred. As we speak now, they're being transferred over to OSCI. We're going to have our first orientation uh, with them on September 27th. And so at that orientation, I'm going to be bringing with me Clifford Jones, uh, who is a graduate of the Angola Seminary and was miraculously, re- I've talked about him before, he was miraculously released from the Angola prison in 2006, became a pastor there, and then was hired by a local church up here in Washington County in Hillsboro, Sunrise Church. He was hired by uh, lead pastor James Gleason, who also went to Angola with me. And so Clifford has been been pastoring in the area now for four years. Clifford knows the type of uh, uh, the type of of, of uh, conflict that there's going to be in prison. The type of attacks, uh, not physical but verbal attacks, there's going to be. So he's going to be there and talking to the men about what they may or you know can expect you know as 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 students. This is a very very special program, and uh, uh, so he'll he'll talk to them about having mercy and grace and and, and being able to you know hold their tongues back a lot of times mm-hmm. maybe when they're getting ridiculed or or whatever by fellow inmates. I don't know that that's going to happen here in Oregon, but I think they should they'll at least be aware of that possibility. Now, this is a four-year program. Once this program is complete for them, what does their future look like as um, adults in custody? Yeah, AICs. Yeah. <laughs> AICs. Well, they'll have at least four years left. So we have some, some men that are, have been accepted into the program that are lifers. The age range runs from 28 to 69. We have a 69-year-old uh, that got accepted in, into the, mm. the college, and uh, he's been in prison, I believe, for 20, 25 years already. And uh, 
he's just looking forward to the opportunity to be a servant, you know, to the other men. I mean, that's what we're training them to do. We're training them to be servants to the, their fellow inmates. And so they're going to end up with that college degree. But what it looks like to some of the other men, what I say to a lot of people is that 95% of the people that I put in prison or any, any other judge puts in prison are going to be released back into our communities. I mean, that number may seem really high. It's probably some people, you know, don't believe that. But, but that's the actual number, actual percentage of the people who are going to be released back into our community, 95%. So the question becomes, how do we want them to come back into our mm-hmm. communities? Do we want them to come back? into our communities with hardened hearts and a 45 strapped to their waistband? Or do we want them to come back with transformed hearts and a college degree in their hand or even a Bible in their hand? The question's really easy to answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, there is an event coming up on November 9th. The ongoing cost of this program um, will certainly be a feature in that event. Tell us a little bit about what moving forward this is going to look like financially and opportunities that most of us have to come alongside and help support this ministry. Yeah, so so we've kind of, uh, we have a brochure, a uh, new brochure that we just put out, and I think that it's available on the website. Yes, it is. Version. And, and uh, so we're trying to break this down like years ago, or I think even today, yet they still have organizations that you can sponsor a child over in a foreign country. Well, one of our plans is to offer, you know, being able to offer a scholarship for an inmate, a student inmate in the Oregon prison system. We've uh, calculated that at a cost of about $5,500 a year spread out over four years. And so $5,500 a year is the cost for giving a scholarship to one of the student inmates in the Oregon prison system. Uh, for four years, that would be, that would be equal to $22,000. The regular degree at Corbin University, these men are going to get the same degree that students at Corbin gets on the out, the students get on the outside, and that would cost about $130,000 to $140,000 for that degree. These men are going to get that degree for $22,000, so if you take a look at it from a return on investment, it's really a great return on investment. Uh, Churches can get involved in this. A church could sponsor, uh, could offer a scholarship to one of the inmates, a group could get together and offer a scholarship of $5,500. Uh, they could offer a half scholarship, twenty seven fifty, for one of the inmates. Or they could do it on a monthly basis, too. So, And again, that uh, this brochure is online. I it know is. I was reading it earlier. Uh, but I would encourage you to get the full story at the event that's coming up on November 9th, uh, the Pay in Full Oregon uh, Founders Banquet. That's going to be at um, the Northwest Events Center in Northeast Century Boulevard in Hillsboro. And again, you can get all the details uh, online. PaidInFullOregon.org is the website, uh, and you can find that all there. Well, Judge Cole, I just want to once again congratulate you and thank you for your faithfulness in taking seriously the charge that God has placed on you and just sort of watching God's hand at work, which is an encouragement to us all. Thank you. It's been a wild roller coaster ride, but it's been fun. (laughs) Look forward to the next update. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll hear from Chris Palmer, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the State Department today expelled two members of Cuba's mission to the United States, to, to the United Nations, rather, and barred the remaining members from leaving Manhattan. 
According to a department spokesperson, the Cubans were found to be running spy operations on American soil. The Department of State today notified the Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs that the United States requires the imminent departure of two members of Cuba's permanent mission to the United Nations for abusing their privileges of residence. The Cuban government has targeted the United States by sending personnel under diplomatic cover to engage in influence activities that are prejudicial to U.S. national security. That's another State Department official said. The department will continue to investigate whether other Cuban personnel are using their position at the U.N. to interfere with U.S. or its allies. In addition to the required departures to travel within the United States by all members of Cuba's permanent mission to the United Nations will now essentially be restricted to the island of Manhattan. Uh, we take any and all attempts against the nation, the national security of the United States seriously and will continue to investigate any additional personnel who may be manipulating their privilege of residence. Well, the announcement came as the U.N. holds its 74th General Assembly in New York. In 2015, the U.S. and Cuba uh, restored relations that had been served uh, rather severed since 1961. However, in April, President Trump reversed a slew of Obama era policies toward Cuba as part of a crackdown on what then National Security Advisor John Bolton referred to as the three stooges of socialism, Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua. In June, the president announced even tougher limits on American travel to Cuba. And that stands today. Well, Washington is rescinding $160 million directed to Afghanistan, according to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, citing unacceptable levels of corruption in the Afghan government. The U.S. will still complete the energy project, which was to account for $100 million of the funding, but it won't be directing the money through Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani. Uh, and his government, which Pompeo said is incapable of being a partner. Pompeo blamed the Afghan government's inability to transparently manage U.S. government resources for walking back the funds, but said the U.S. would still build the five powers uh, substation and maze of transmission lines in southern Afghanistan. Washington is withholding the other $60 million in aid and will not be redirecting it to projects in Afghanistan on the belief that Ghani's government is neither transparent nor accountable in its spending. The U.S. is also cutting off all funding to Afghan body in charge of government corruption, the Monitoring and Evaluation Committee, saying it's incapable of being a partner in the international effort to build a better future for the Afghan people. We stand against those who exploit their position of power and influence to deprive the Afghan people of the benefits of foreign assistance and a more prosperous future, Pompeo said in a statement. Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction John Sopko, he cited reports dating back nine years in which hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid to the nation is missing, wasted on corrupt contracts and wasteful spending. After 18 years with troops in the nation and $800 billion, the U.S. decision to pull back funding from Afghanistan marks a significant pivot. The Afghan government depends almost entirely on foreign assistance. And President Trump has filed lawsuit against his own accounting firm, Mazars USA and Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance in federal court in an effort to prevent the release of his tax returns. The lawsuit filed in Manhattan federal court and obtained was in response to Vance's move to subpoena Mazars for eight years of the president's personnel and corporate tax uh, returns as part of an investigation into potential campaign financial violations. In response uh, to the subpoenas issued by the New York County District Attorney, we have filed a lawsuit this morning in federal court on behalf of the president in order to address the significant constitutional issues at stake in this case. Uh, the president's attorney, Jay Sekulow, 
uh, said today. The filing by Trump's legal team claims the subpoena for his tax returns are unconstitutional while the president is in office. It also asked the court to order a permanent injunction staying the subpoena while the president is in office. Trump's lawyers also claim that Vance was running a harassment campaign against the president. His attorney, Mark Mukasey, uh, said that we are in court to protect the president's rights and the Constitution. Vance has until the close of business Monday to file a response to Trump's motion for a temporary restraining order, and Trump's legal team must reply by the end of the day on Tuesday. Both sides are scheduled to appear for oral arguments on Wednesday morning. In the meantime, Vance has agreed to stay enforcement and compliance with the subpoena issued to Mazars LLP. We are pleased that the constitutional issue at stake in this case will receive the appropriate review from the district court, Trump's legal team says. Ed Buck, a Los Angeles political activist and longtime donor to many prominent Democrats, <clears throat> was hit with a federal charge on Thursday in a 2017 drug overdose death of 26-year-old Jamal Moore. Buck is 65. He was charged with disturbing, uh, rather distributing methamphetamine resulting in Moore's death. Buck was charged earlier this week with causing the overdose of another man who escaped from his West Hollywood home this month. A third man, Timothy Dean, died of an overdose there in January. Buck's attorney did not immediately comment, but Moore and Dean were both African-Americans. Buck is not. He was uh, not charged immediately following the deaths, and critics later questioned if wealth, race, or political ties influenced the investigation. NBC News is asking Americans to confess their climate change sins, though at least some people have taken the opportunity to troll the news agency. Even those who care deeply about the planet's future can slip up now and then. Tell us, where do you fall short in preventing uh, climate change? Reads the instruction to NBC's Climate Confessions Project. Well, many of the responses appear to take the project seriously. One person confessed taking flights to see their son across the country. I fly to see my son on the West Coast. I live on the East, reads the confession. I drive to work even though the bus is almost as fast. I often feel I have good excuses, another person confessed. I wish I had been born a vegan and then maybe it would be easier. I can't seem to give up meat, another confession stated. One person apparently used the project to tout their um, virtuousness rather than confess their climate sins. I love meat, but I love the earth more. Vegan for over four years now, they wrote. Others appear to have taken the opportunity to troll NBC over the project. One such uh, entry reads, I require at least half a roll of toilet paper each time. I like my house to be 85 degrees in the winter and 55 in the summer. Deal with it, hippies, one person wrote. I live on Earth where even if we achieve carbon neutrality in the first, um, in the first world, that's only 19.1% of the population, another stated. I don't do anything for the environment. I don't care, reads another. I am eating bacon with breakfast this morning and I'll have it again tomorrow, another declared. One person submitted lyrics about loving plastic straws. I love plastic straws and I cannot lie. As many as I can get before I die. Such straight soda with apple pie. Yes, sir, I'm the guy. Confessing one's sins to NBC. Pro-life advocates have a reason to celebrate this week after a report shows abortions dropping to a new all-time low across the United States. The Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood, a pro-abortion research group, considered to have the most comprehensive abortion data, reported a 7% drop in abortions between 2017 and 2014. There were 862,320 abortions reported in 2017, down from 926,200 in 2014. Not since the U.S. Supreme Court allowed abortion on demand in 1973 through Roe v. Wade have abortion numbers been 
so low. Not low enough, but lower. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part by Zero Res. Coming up, we'll talk with Chris Palmer, author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I've been looking forward to a conversation with my next guest, Chris Palmer, he's the author of Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. And he's a Greek scholar, which adds another twist to it that helps us better understand the scriptures. Well, Letters from Jesus makes accessible to every believer a book of the New Testament that's quite often avoided. It's the book of Revelation. In Letters from Jesus, he offers 52 studies from the Greek text that will be a delight for every reader. Uh, He leads uh, us through a portion of text from the letters to the churches of Revelation while mining spiritual insights from the Greek text that are colorfully illustrated with personal stories and encouraging words from a pastor's heart. And it is really a fascinating study. Well, my guest is uh, Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church and founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He is host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week, a Greek uh, linguistics scholar in uh, theology. He often uh, presents at Greek and uh, hermeneutic workshops. His previous books include uh, Living as a Spirit, Hearing the Voice of God on Purpose, The 85 Questions You Ask When You Begin a Relationship with God in the Believer's Journey, uh, and among others. He joins us today once again to talk about his latest Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgina, you there? How are you? I'm doing very well. And again, we're just delighted to have you with us. You begin in the introduction by pointing out, for those of us who are familiar with the book of Revelation, that life hasn't changed much over the last two millennia, and that even though the landscape of human advancement and achievement um, have changed somewhat, um, we're not that different from our ancestors. So this is a very relevant, as is true of all Scripture, portion of Scripture to the Church today. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on the broadcast, and uh, it's great to be in, to be heard in Portland. And uh, but yes, it is a uh, it is a like like your like your uh, radio uh, tagline is critical thinking for critical times, and uh, this book actually um, deals with situations that happened two thousand years ago. But just because the history and the culture is so far removed, our culture today is exactly the same because it's dealing with the exact same problems that we have today as they did 2,000 years ago. And though we live in a technologically filled world where people are moving quickly, we find the exact same problems. And there's so much to relate, especially when you put the Greek text to it. It just brings it into a whole new light. And it really is it made for an interesting study. As a matter of fact, um, just the way the book came out after I'd written it, I was so enriched by doing it myself that I just really was uh, pleased with the, the way it came out. And I'm, I'm certain that people that read it will be as well, Georgie. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the seven churches um, of Asia Minor. And we sometimes think we're talking about Asia, but explain a yeah. little bit about these seven <laughs> churches. So people think that maybe it's in Japan or China somewhere or you know, in Malaysia, but actually we're talking about the modern day country of Turkey and we're talking about the West coast of Turkey. So if you've ever been near Izmir, um, not as far North as Istanbul, but just along that Western coast right mm-hmm. there, it's actually on the uh, Eastern side of the Aegean Sea. And here you have the cradle of civilization. This is where all the cultures came together. It's where, the, where you have uh, the Middle East meets Europe meets uh, Central Asia. And, you know, you find that there are a lot of churches by this point, about 96 AD, later dates of the book of Revelation, uh, and John has been exiled to the island of Patmos as a political prisoner. He's busting rocks in a stone quarry, and 
He's probably left to himself, and he's there, he's despised. He gets this vision from Jesus, and he writes to the seven churches. Now, the book of Revelation in the Greek, the very first word that we see is the Greek word apocalypsis. That not only tells us the revelation, but it identifies the genre of the book. Apocalyptic literature is very important at that time. Numerology was very important in apocalyptic literature. And that tells the audience, or the original audience at that time, that this is going to be an apocalyptic literature genre, which meant that they needed to pay attention to numbers. And they would have been very familiar with how numbers were in the Old Testament. And the most important Hebrew number at that time was seven. Seven was how many days Jesus took to create, or God took to create, well, God is Jesus, but took to create the earth, seven times name and dip from the river Jordan, seven times they marched around the walls of Jericho. And so he writes to seven churches. That meant a complete message to all of the churches. It wouldn't just been seven churches, but all the churches around. But these specific seven churches were probably mother churches. They had other churches under them. And they were facing uh, differences of uh, challenges. Uh, and we boil those down in the book to three types of challenges with these seven churches. First challenge being uh, what Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira faced, which was warning for those tempted to assimilate with the ungodly culture. I mean, they were getting, they were being tempted from the inside out. They had uh, pr- prostitution was going on. They had idolatry that was going on, compromise. And then you see that there's two other churches that were different from them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and they were being encouraged by the Lord because they were facing persecution. They, had, they, they didn't receive any rebuke. The Lord came to encourage them and push them forward. And then we see Sardis and Laodicea. Now, this is a church that's very common to us in the American church today. This is a church that had experienced success. They were kind of like the Milan. They had fashion going for them. They had medical advances. I often liken them to Boston. They were very, uh, very smart intellectually, but they were very comfortable in their Christianity. And they got apathetic. And so we find that in our Christian walk, we can identify with these. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're being persecuted at a new job or maybe in the country that we're living in or maybe by our family because we've converted to Jesus. Or maybe we're being tempted right now to assimilate. We see with uh, new legislation that's been passed and the, new, the way our liberal universities are leaning, it maybe we're tempted to assimilate to the culture. We're tempted just to develop the mindset of the day. Or maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe we've experienced a level of success in our life and now we don't pray the way we used to pray and don't go to church the way we go to church and seek God for his presence and his power the way that we used to seek him for it. And so we find ourselves in one of these three situations, and it's just a tremendous lens that we can look at as we go through the book of Revelation. And, Georgie, uh, it really sets the tone to jump into the fourth and fifth and all the way to the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, because we're going to see it through the eyes of one of these churches. Yeah, in fact, you write that the situation of the seven churches of Revelation provides the context for us to understand the rest of the book. Now, of all of the churches, uh, why were these seven chosen? These were not just uh, churches that stood alone. You make the point that they, they were really influencers. Can you tell us a little bit about the role they played in influencing the church at large? Yeah, so they would have been your hub churches. I mean, they would have had I say they would have like they would have had satellites under them. They would have been the mother church of other churches that were under them. Ephesus was the premier church. Pergamum had the biggest library at that time. Uh, Thyatira had a, a lot of workers, you know, a larger uh, base of Christians. And so, um, not only that, but when you look at how John would have sent these letters to the churches, it would have followed an old postal route. 
So it was very convenient for a courier to take the letters to these seven churches and then for the letter to be written out loud. So they would have moved along the line in an old postal route and starting with Ephesus and then moving to Smyrna and then kind of making its way around. And it was just very strategic by the Holy Spirit to write to these churches because in writing to these churches, it would get the message out to all the other churches based upon their location. You write that there is an even more interesting observation um, to be noted. In Revelation 1, 12 through 18, John describes the vision he has of Jesus. He sees the resurrected Lord in the center of seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. If we look at the map and imagine Christ standing in the center of the churches, we'll observe that we move around him and his splendor as we read each message. This represents several things, and one of them is that Christ is at the center of everything at all times. And you, there are several other things that you mention as well that, that make, again, the way this, this portion of Revelation was written significant and what it tells us about uh, Christ's role in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, if you, so Christ has appeared in the midst of the seven churches. This is so important. This is communicating something to all believers at all times. Number one, and this is the message we need to hear today. Number one is that Christ is the center of everything at all times. He's the center of the message of the seven churches. He's the center of the book of Revelation. I mean, so many times, uh, you know, I'm working on my PhD in Revelation, uh, a Pentecostal uh, scholar at the University of uh, Wales, Banger. And we're looking at how the book of Revelation has been presented over the years. And we're seeing that, you know, it's going, it, a lot of times people preach Revelation, teach it, it becomes a conspiratory book. We start to look at maybe uh, speculation, who could be the Antichrist. And, and we miss the message that the message is about Jesus, the message is about Christ and staying faithful to the Lamb in the midst of the challenges that we face in this time of uh, tribulation that we have. And so, it, but it also represents the fullness of Christ that we must fully accept everything that he's saying to the churches. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have this, we have this uh, popcorn type mentality, this buffet mentality as believers that, hey, we want the good message. We want the things we see on Instagram. We want the quotes and the good quotes about the goodness of God and the love of God. And that's good. But what about the message of judgment? What about the message of the fact that God, in order to be an ultimately good God, he has to discipline, he has to judge righteously, and that his judgment is perfect and true. And how he sees sin, and even though he's forgiven, us, we still have to make sure that we use the power of the Holy Spirit that he's given us to have a clean life and a life of holiness. And so we have to accept the full message that's in there. And number three, by being in the midst of the seven churches, it emphasizes to us that Jesus is the center and that in order to experience Christ, we experience him as a community. The Bible is written to communities. It's written to whole churches. And so that means that for us to understand the gospel and be part of the body, we have to fellowship with one another, that I'm not going to learn everything I need to know about God on my own. I have to have brothers and sisters who are there with me in the thick of the tribulation, in the thick of the persecution, in the midst of the temptation, helping me through it. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. the significance of it. We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Chris Palmer. Letters from Jesus, studies from the seven churches of Revelation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back, continuing my conversation with Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church, founder of the Chris Path uh, Palmer Ministries, and he's the host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week. We're talking about his latest book, Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Now, as I've mentioned, you are a Greek scholar, and that plays a significant role in how the book is constructed to help us better understand what is it that Jesus is saying to the seven churches, and by way of the seven churches, what he is saying to us. Explain to readers who don't have a copy of the book in front of them how 
um, you uh, use the Greek to help us better understand what uh, what Jesus is saying. Okay, so the Greek, so first, the most important thing I want to say is that if somebody has an English translation, your English translation is really wonderful. There's The, the Word of God is, I get, because I get this a lot after interviews, that is it inspired, is it infallible, you know, is the Word of God um, an error? I say yes, yes, and yes. Even in your English translation, you've done a great job. But if you ever study a second language, Georgine, and those listening, you know that it doesn't always carry over. Uh, you could say, you know, how are you in English? You have three words, how are you? But in Italian, for instance, come stai is two words. So now it's, you can't really do it word for word. And so sometimes saying something uh, takes more words or less words. And even with that, you sometimes miss nuances. Now, John, he is a great, not, he, sometimes we think when somebody is, is in the Old Testament, was the writer of the New Testament, et cetera, et cetera, that they just kind of the Holy Spirit came upon them. They just started writing uncontrollably. That really wasn't how it was. The inspiration of the Spirit came upon them. They were inspired with the Word of God. But they use writing style, and we noticed this, that Paul has a different writing style from John versus Peter. John's writing style is witty. He loves to make word, uh, plays on words. He loves to use language as a tool in order to emphasize and drive home a point. And he especially does this in the book of Revelation. He plays on words. And it's hard to see that in the English. You don't notice it right away. But in the Greek, you start to see emphasis, things that he says, the, the richness of the Greek text, and, and not just and not just what a word means, but also how the syntax is laid out. Now, the problem I've had with a lot of Greek resources in seminary and, and versus in Bible school is that it is, very, is written mostly for seminary students, a lot of these textbooks, seminary students, and the average person, the, the busy mother, uh, the busy father, the busy businesswoman, businessman, they don't have time every day to dig through grammars, to look up this stuff. And, and it was to me, hey, you know what? I can do this for them. I'm going to go through the richness of the Greek and the syntax. I'm going to pull it out and put it together with contemporary practical examples so that on your coffee break or in the morning or maybe you're waiting in the car to pick up your child from school, you can read one of these it's followed with a prayer. It's followed with a practical 21st century uh, example. And you get what the Greek is saying. And I've taken out the, the technical language I've placed in the back. If scholars are interested in it, but it's such an easy read. And you see the Greek just makes it really pop. I say all the time, Georgine, it's like reading in HD. It really is. Mm-hmm. Well, the book Letters from Jesus features 52 studies on love, endurance, worldview, holiness, the Holy Spirit, Christian living, faithfulness, and walks us through for 52 weeks. Uh, the subjects that Jesus speaks to the seven churches of uh, Asia uh, Minor. Um, Talk a little bit about how the book is structured, because it, again, is designed to be very practical and to help us uh, fully appreciate what uh, Jesus was saying to the churches through uh, John and what he is saying to us today. So, so like I said, again, critical thinking for critical times, like you said, this book deals with culture. It deals with what would Jesus say to people today? And so the way I structure it is that it is 52 studies. You don't have to do one a week, you can do one a day however you like, they're going to take you seven studies in each church. Some of them have eight. And you're going to start with the scripture. You're going to see it in Greek. You're going to see it in English. You don't have to have any experience in Greek to read this book or even to enjoy this book. I do it very simply for you. There's a story from uh, the news or something in culture or funny, something that is from maybe an anecdote from my personal life, my experience, but a lot of stories that are out there you may have never heard before that are from, you know, uh, whatever, CNN, Fox, just things like that. Put it right into the book. 
And then at the same time, I bring in uh, the grief and I bring in the culture. I'm telling you what's going on in the churches. And then I make a practical example for your life, how this can benefit you today with the prayer and with encouragement. And there's, there's so many things going on at the church. The cultural insight, the richness of the text. And it really, if you're looking for a book that just takes you deep without making you have to do uh, mental exercises and, and to really feel like you're in college again, this book is just fantastic. It'll really bless your life and take you deep. It's the book you're looking for. Was there one of the letters to the churches that resonated particularly with you? Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd ask this. My favorite, <laughs> uh, my, my, my favorite is Smyrna because they were like the Smyrna in Philadelphia. They were the church. They were going through a lot. And you know something, uh, Georgine, he tells the church in Smyrna, he tells them, we were laughing with the publisher, we said, hey, Jesus is saying, have no fear, it's going to get worse. That's basically what he tells them. We don't like to hear that because we're going to get better. But he tells them, listen, this suffering that you're experiencing, it's only going to last you 10 days. Now, people say, well, what do you mean 10 days? Now, the word, the number 10 is very significant because we see the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. But then we see that there's 10 days of suffering, which means that the things that God has prepared for us in eternity and now, the, the thousand is far out of a hundred times greater than the suffering that you're experiencing in your life right now. That would have been tremendously encouraging for the Smyrnians to hear that, hey, even though I'm suffering right now, I was reading earlier today C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. He's going through this struggle with his wife. He watches her die, you know, and his, his heart is broken. And here's the greatest writer in mind of our time. He cannot put together or make any sense of suffering. And he really leaves it without a conclusion, but he does say at the very end that he has the hope of the resurrection. And that is the truth for us as believers. We're not going to be able to make sense of our suffering here. It's like there's no answer. Doing my PhD on it, and it's really, it, you start to see it with a background philosophy. There's really no answer to it, but you know something? We have the hope of Christ. We have the hope of a thousand years, and we have the hope that whatever we're going through right now is just 10 days, and God is taking care of it through His Son Jesus, and we just need to remain faithful. And that's a great spring back to go into the book of Revelation and see that what the 10 days look like versus what a thousand years look like. And it should be encouraging for us as believers and give us great joy in the victory that Christ has given us. Among the major themes that Christ chooses to employ in his letters uh, throughout this portion of uh, the text are the warnings to those who are tempted by worldliness uh, uh, and of other cultures that were in their midst. That's one of the major challenges that the church faces here in America, and I think in the West in general. Give us an insight or two on, on what is said and um, the warning that might help us to avoid falling into the same uh, pitfall that the early church did. Yeah, so the church in Thyatira is a perfect example. I mean, they were the church that were compromising. They were dealing with a woman that was named Jezebel. She, she came in on a religious tone. She came in saying she's a prophetess, teaching, and she was seducing the servants of God, and she was practicing sexual morality. And so she was basically teaching these Thyatirans, hey, you can relax your standards and you can live sexually free the way you want. And the reason is, is because, hey, you have the grace of God. You know something? Because of it, and, and this would happen in Pergamum as well, and it was done being uh, by a guy named Nicholas, who we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was a deacon, and he had gotten into loose living. He was teaching, and, and, and the Thyatirans especially. And the Thyatirans, they worked hard because, they, like I said previously, they're hard workers, and they belong to guilds. On these guilds, they were dedicated to idol worship. They were dedicated usually to some Greek or Roman god, and there's pressure on the Christians. Do we go to these guild parties or do we not go to these guild parties? If we go to them, 
then it's sinful. It's against our Christian belief. But if we don't go to them, then they're going to make fun of us, they're going to harass us, and they're going to persecute us. What should we do? And Jesus comes and he answers the question, and he points to his feet. He says, my feet are like the Greek word says, chokolibano. It's only used one time in all the scripture, and uh, the Greek philosopher said that it was far better than gold. It was the finest alloy of the time, very expensive, and it was because of its purity. He was saying, do you want to walk with me? You have to walk with me in purity. You're going to have to make a decision that your life is more important to walk with me than it is to compromise. And there was no exception for compromise. He was telling them, you must choose Jesus. You must choose me. And you know, Georgina, I do think today that as we live in this life, that the call to holiness, the call to live for Christ, is being resounded again, that we have to be holy people that, that endeavor to live for Christ, that we are not going to bend to the culture, that because Revelation is about confronting political idolatry. It's about saying, hey, I don't care what the culture changes and what uh, subjectiveness you see about sexuality, what subjectiveness you see about uh, redefining things. We're going to stand with Jesus. We're not going to bend our life to uh, to, to whatever people say is good in the time. And that was the, 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 the struggle of the Thyatirans. You know something? We deal with that every yeah. single day yeah. today, and that's where they're at. Once again, the book is titled Letters from Jesus, Studies from the Seven Churches of Revelation. Um, Chris Palmer, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. I would uh, certainly recommend our uh, listeners pick it up. Whitaker House is the publisher, and is, uh, the book is uh, currently available. Thank you so much. Georgine, thank you so much for having me. God bless you very much. You too. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a church planter in the Middle East has shared the miraculous ways the gospel's moving across the persecuted region, including how Jesus appeared to a Muslim man every night for weeks, reciting to him the entire Gospel of John. Now, I know you might be skeptical about this sort of thing, but I have heard testimonies firsthand from individuals who had no Christian witness who came to faith in Christ because Christ appeared to them in an isolated area. Well, as part of the Gospel Coalition's Something Needs to Change event uh, that was held Wednesday night, David Platt, who's the author and pastor of uh, McLean Bible Church, held an interview with a missionary identified only as Yazim. He lives and works in a part of the Middle East where not only is it illegal to share the gospel, it's life-threatening to talk about how the gospel is advancing. Well, speaking via simulcast with a disguised voice, Yazim began by stating, God is moving inside the Middle East with dreams, visions, and personal visitations. He shared the story of a man who lived about 50 kilometers outside of an unnamed Middle Eastern city known for vast opium use. The man said this uh, to us when we visited him. A man wearing all white knocked at my door every night, and I couldn't look at him because his face was so shiny and bright. Yazim recalled that when we uh, when he would... Uh, come inside, he asked me to write down what he said. As I wrote, I fell asleep. The next night, he would come again for the next month. Yazim asked the man, what did you write? May I see your notebook? Well, the man showed Yazim his notebook. It was written, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The opening portion, of course, of the New Testament book, of the Gospel of John. Well, he had the, uh, he had, uh, the whole book uh, verbatim written in his notebook, the whole book of John, Yazim revealed. Jesus visited him every night until he finished writing what he heard. Well, the amazing thing is the man actually asked us, who was this man 
that visited me. He didn't know. I learned a valuable lesson. God will do his part, but we still have to do ours, he added. Well, Platt revealed that Yazim's own conversion story is miraculous. His wife was a devout Muslim who, profoundly depressed by the demands of Islam, decided to take her own life. However, that very night, she heard the gospel from the, for the first time and decided her, uh, her life should be dedicated to Jesus. Well, following that event, she and her husband decided to stay in their homeland and dedicate their lives to sharing the gospel despite the risks associated uh, with that decision. Our focus is to make dis- uh, to make disciples who make disciples who then start new churches, Yazim said. We believe that what God commanded us to do in Matthew 28, apparently they took it seriously. We believe that if you make disciples, churches will grow. Yazim and his wife reveal they hope to plant 10 more churches, but making disciples takes time and funding as new Christians must be taken to secret locations to be trained. This training, along with supporting the leaders, costs a great deal of money uh, for 10 churches to be developed. Platt, who earlier in the evening uh, announced the proceeds from his latest book will go to urgent needs in the world, said, Well, Yazim, we praise God for what you're doing in the front lines in the Middle East. We want you to know from your brothers and sisters who are behind you on those lines that you're not alone. Count us in for $25,000. By the way, that's the amount it would cost to provide training for leaders in these 10 churches. Well, these kinds of stories of Jesus appearing in visions to Muslims throughout the Islamic world are not uncommon. According to Mission Frontiers magazine, out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led them to their conversion. Last year, a former Muslim turned pastor who started hundreds of churches in Pakistan told the Christian Post that many Muslims are making decisions to convert after Jesus himself has visited them in dreams and in visions. It's very dangerous for anyone to preach the word of God face to face in face in non-Western countries, the pastor told the Christian Post. God reveals things through dreams to evangelists and pastors. People in the East are more uneducated, unable to read the Bible. So God uses this method to reach them. People are very faithful in the East, placing themselves in positions to see the signs of God by studying his word. He added, Eastern people watch for the signs and miracles to show that the word of God is alive. It is a privilege, one not everyone can share in, to own a Bible in the East. In the West, people look more for wisdom like the Greeks of old. They do not always rely on faith, which can't be seen. But in the East, people are coming to know Christ because Christ is speaking to those who diligently seek him or who are longing for truth. I hope you're encouraged because uh, it just reminds us that God is at work when we don't see him in places we wouldn't expect. So be encouraged. Tomorrow, the best of the Georgine Rice Show, as I'm going to share the weekend with my sisters from Scapoose. On Monday, we're going to talk with Jeffrey Dean, author of Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. On Tuesday, we'll talk with John uh, Pollard, Chester A. Arthur, the accidental president. Remember President Arthur? No, there was one. Uh, on Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Pastor Victor Alvarez. He is the pastor that whose vision was responsible for Conquest 2019. We're going to talk with him about the event that took place about a week and a half, two weeks ago, by the time we'll have him back on the program, and find out what's next. This was an event that uh, spanned a number of churches that reached out to our community in some a very specific and dramatic ways, and we'll give him an opportunity to bring us up to date because there are follow-up uh, events and uh, efforts uh, that are coming up. So we'll make sure uh, you have an opportunity to find out what they are on Thursday. We're working on a couple of other things as well. Uh, also on Friday, expect to be right here in studio, and we will turn our attention, our sights on uh, the lighter side of the news.
By the way, if you didn't have an opportunity to hear my conversation with retired Judge Tom Cole, I would encourage you to either go to kpdq.com and listen to the podcast or go to their website, Paid in Full Oregon. They are doing a significant work, and it's so exciting because I remember the first conversation I had with uh, Judge Cole at the very beginning of this effort and to see how far and how quickly this has moved forward, the partnerships that have been forged and the fact that students are ready to be trained from Oregon State's uh, prison system is really uh, exciting and unprecedented in this uh, Pacific Northwest region. So if you didn't, uh, again, have an opportunity to hear that conversation, you can check it out online or you can go to their website where you can find out more, not only about uh, the status of this project, but also Uh, The event that they have coming up in November, uh, to which you are invited. They're looking, of course, for people who will help underwrite the cost of all of this. Uh, So much of the funding has been raised, but the ongoing cost of uh, supporting these inmates in their effort to uh, receive an accredited uh, education that will equip them to become ministers within the prison system. Um, So we hope you'll take, uh, take advantage of the opportunity to learn more and perhaps even consider attending the event coming up in November. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for uh, making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Just want to remind you, once again, on Monday, uh, we're going to talk with Jeffrey Dean, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. The book is published by Multnomah, and we'll look forward to sharing a conversation with him about that. And then, of course, on Friday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll join us for that. Well, I hope you have a great weekend and good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.